Welcome back to our teaching in the book of John. Now, the last time we were here, we completed chapter two, where we saw two particular things. That is the miracle at Cana, or in other words, the sign that Jesus performed in Cana in turning the water into wine. And this, as John said, was done to show forth his glory. And if you recall, we talked about how that was tied on to the end of chapter one, when Jesus told Nathaniel that he would see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. That is, Nathaniel would see wonderful and mighty things done by the hand of Jesus. He would see the power of God at work in his person. Then the second thing that we saw in chapter two was the cleansing of the temple. And we're not going to get into all of the details on that. Go back and look at it once again. But nevertheless, it showed Jesus's dissatisfaction with how temple worship was actually done. Or should I even say the lack of worship was being done in the temple that is in the court of the Gentiles where the sons of Anna had turned it basically into a marketplace and the Gentiles had no place of worship and Jesus filled with zealousness for the temple of God, cleansed the temple of God and simply said, take these things out of here. And this also became an issue between Jesus and the priest later on. These issues would develop and become more irritating between Jesus and the religious leaders. Okay. But nevertheless, so it ended in chapter two in talking about how Jesus continued to perform signs and those signs that he performed, many people started to believe in him. And when you see the believing in him in this context, you have to understand it, that many of the Jewish people at the Passover, because this was that time, began to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah of the Jews. But as we talked about that issue or that statement of actually what belief is, their belief was not genuine faith. Their faith was like the temperature, come and go. And so it kind of says at the end of the chapter, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. Jesus knew that their faith in him was not true faith. It was a superficial faith. Okay. All right. And now let us get ready to go into chapter three. And there is still another tie that John, the writer of the gospel of John, the apostle John is making with the end of chapter two. And that is Jesus knows What's in the heart of man? And we see this as we move into chapter three in dealing with the great teacher, Nicodemus. Okay, so without any further ado, we're going to talk about that. And we're going to only talk about Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus because of the demand of the text here. All right. So now let's start. And the difficult portions, we'll kind of take our time and bring it to light what's going on in the background of the scriptures, because that's very important to understand. So chapter three. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, so now we have the entrance of Nicodemus coming to Jesus and describes Nicodemus as a Pharisee and the ruler of the Jews. Now, it is important to understand that when we talk about these references to people like Pharisee and things of that nature, you have to always take into consideration the belief systems of these particular people. And now, the Pharisees had a belief system that was very similar to Jesus's beliefs. And we know Jesus is God and the word of God. But just let me say it in this manner. Believe in the same thing. There was the belief in angels, the belief in spirit, belief in resurrection from the dead, things of that nature. Now, the primary issue that Jesus had with the Pharisees was the hedge that they built around the law of Moses. In other words, Jesus would only obey those 613 commandments that are in the Mosaic law. What the Pharisees did and others before them, and we don't want to get into all of the history of these things that took place uh, hundreds of years ago and compounding to that day, they set about to build what they called a hedge about the law in giving additional commandments that are not written in the scriptures. And the belief was if they set these commandments to the people uh, to do or not to do those commandments, which are even before the law, not contained in the law, that it would it would be like a protective fence so that if you didn't break these laws, you definitely would not break the law of Moses. Do you understand that? So they would give additional commandments, like when the Bible says to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy and everything that is written in the law of Moses concerning the Sabbath, they would add additional laws. Say, for instance, don't carry your pallet. Remember when the man was healed and was carrying his pallet, he said, take up your bed, go to your own house. And the man was taking his pallet up and they saw him and said, it is not lawful for you to carry your pallet. They weren't saying that it was not lawful according to the Mosaic law, but in accordance to those traditions and additional laws that they added later on. This became known as the Mishnah, but we're not getting into all of that. But these additional laws. So and that was basically the the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees, the additional rules and regulations that they had added unto the law of Moses. And the Pharisees saw the Messiah. They believed that the Messiah would come and help them to add even more laws around it. But when Jesus rejected their additions of so-called laws and what they actually did was they made the rules there, their additional rules sacrosanct with the law of Moses. In other words, they set it on par 
to disobey the words of a rabbinic law was just as great as to disobey the law of Moses itself. Jesus did not go with this, but so they expected Jesus to participate in this building up of the law. Okay. But in the base sense, their belief system was fairly the same. They accepted the law of Moses as well as the prophets. All right. Enough said about that. But so this Nicodemus was a Pharisee and he was a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the Sanhedrin council. And we talked about that. The council of the Jewish elders, 70 men that ruled over the nation in matters of religion. And Nicodemus was a part of such a group. And later on, you'll see Nicodemus come about when Nicodemus comes to a somewhat defense of Jesus, but that's later on and even at the time of Jesus's burial, but we're not there. So this Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Now, let me deal with the by night thing because we, you may have heard that it was something probably nefarious about him coming by night. He didn't want people to see uh, him. Most likely that is not the case. Nicodemus is not hiding as he's coming to Jesus, as some seem to think. Undoubtedly, this is not the case. But Nicodemus is busy with his affairs in the daytime, in whatever business matters he has attend to, in whatever matters of court that he may have attend to. So finding a convenient time to come to Jesus and talk with him would be night. So Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He addresses Jesus with respect and calls him rabbi, teacher. And then he says, we know that you have come from God. You are a true teacher, comes from God. You are a teacher, come from God. But we know that lets us know that amongst the Pharisees, there is a discussion. There's a discussion as to the legitimacy of Jesus as to whether or not Indeed, he is a teacher. And in this discussion, they're on the fence for the most part. But what they do believe is there is some sense of him being divinely sent from God. Notice what he says. We know you are a teacher and what? You have come from God. Now, he's not talking about the coming from God as Jesus would later on talk of himself being sent directly from God. Nicodemus simply meaning one who has been authorized by God, one who is being blessed or gifted by God to be a teacher. There is a difference in how Jesus himself would use the idea and concept of one who comes from God, one who is sent by God. Jesus means that in the literal sense, Nicodemus means that in the spiritual sense of being uh, 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 empowered by God to do a thing. But notice what he says, because of the many signs that you are doing and that verb that what he is doing is in the present tense. That is Jesus continuously performed signs. Always remember this was the very idea, signs or miracle. Same word, Simeon. Why did Jesus perform the miracles that he did? Primarily to say, 
I am who I am claiming to be. And the things that I'm saying to you is the truth. And which we understand is the gospel. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and the coming one king of the Jews. And so therefore God empowered him to do signs to validate his person and his message. And so Nicodemus is saying, we get the point. The miracles, the signs that you are performing lets us know in the minimal sense, in the minimal sense, you are a teacher who has been uh, enlightened by God, sent by God as if like one of the prophets. And so Jesus answered him and said to him, truly, truly, I say unto you, you cannot see the kingdom unless you are born again. Now, here is that statement that performs that tie that we had to the end of chapter two. Remember at the very end of chapter two, when it says Jesus did not give himself over to any man because he knew what was in the heart of a man. And so therefore, when people and we're not getting all of that, but their superficial belief in him. Now, Nicodemus is not having a superficial belief in Jesus. He is really trying to determine who Jesus is for himself. So Nicodemus is in doubt as to are you the Christ or not? Because it is the Christ looking forward to the coming of the Christ is the one who allows you to enter into the kingdom of God. So the very idea is how does a man enter the kingdom of God? Again, how does a man enter the kingdom of God? And you got to remember now, and I don't have time to get in all of that. And I know I probably said I don't have time too many guys, too much guys, but I'm sorry because, you know, there's so many things in the Bible you can't touch upon every single point or the lessons will last for hours and hours and hours. But you can, you have to keep in mind the Jewish expectation is not the same as what basically we have in the church today. The idea, and it's a wrong idea, or should I even say a half baked idea is not complete is we look for, we look to go into heaven. That's what we say. When we, we're going to go to heaven and that's where we're going to be for all eternity. That is incorrect. And that is not taught in the scriptures at all. And the Jews did not have this as their expectation. They had an expectation of a coming kingdom where, especially the Pharisees, there will be a resurrection of the righteous dead. There will be judgment for the unrighteous and that the Messiah whom Jesus is. And right now, Nicodemus doesn't know whether or not he is that one, but the Messiah would reestablish, would, would establish, establish Israel as the head of all of other nations, of all of the other Gentile nations. And these Gentile would be righteous Gentile nations. All of the nations, Jerusalem would be the place for the capital city, the capital worship of God. So, and there, this would, in their mind, in their mind, they thought that this was the end of things, that once the kingdom uh, established and ruled over by the Messiah should come, this is it. But later, but we know through what we call progressive revelation, that is God giving further insight in the scriptures 
namely the New Testament scriptures, Revelation, the book of Revelation, even chapter 20, that the kingdom of the Messiah would last only 1,000 years. So in a nutshell, how does the end work? If we should die before the second, second coming of Christ, the return of Christ, we go into heaven, the church, because the church was the great mystery of God. Go back and look at the videos that I did in Matthew chapter 13 when I talked about the mystery kingdom. That is the church, that which was once hidden and the prophets did not know about in that same sense. The prophets did not know. The Jews themselves did not know. It is a new creation in Christ Jesus. But after the rapture of the church, that is, and that's when we go to heaven. But in the second advent, we return back to the earth. When we return to the earth, that's when Jesus sets up the kingdom expected by the Jewish people, which lasts for a thousand years. And then after the thousand years is the great judgment day. After the great judgment day, the entire universe, the entire universe is destroyed, is dissolved, and God creates a brand new creation. He creates another universe. He creates another earth. And that's when the heaven of God comes down to the earth, the new earth. That's Revelation chapter 21. And then you step into eternity and that eternity will be on the new earth. So the idea of going to heaven and remaining forever is just not in the scripture. Okay. I must apologize for that digression, but once again, hope that helped you out. But Nicodemus, let's go back to John, is looking for how can a man enter into the kingdom of God? Now, he did not say that. So let's go back to chapter two. Jesus knows the mind of man. Nicodemus only comes to Jesus and opens his mouth with words of praises. We know you're a teacher who comes from God because nobody can do that. He never asks Jesus any question, but notice Jesus supplies an answer to the question that Nicodemus does not ask. Why? End of chapter two. He knows what's in the mind and heart of man. That's how it ties. Okay. So Jesus answers the question Nicodemus does not ask about the, about the kingdom. How can a man have a certainty, and you'll see that throughout the Gospels. That, remember the rich young ruler, what must I do in order to be saved? What must I do in order to enter into the kingdom? I want to be there. I need a certainty, okay? Back here again. So Jesus says to him, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now, he uses that term born again. This is one of those times John that is the writer of John's gospel, John the apostle, at times likes to use dualistic thought, dualistic thought like light and darkness, okay? Day and night, things of that nature. A lie and the truth. These are dualistic or somewhat, sometimes they can be opposing terms. Sometimes they cannot be opposing, but the idea is it gives sometimes a Opposing meaning or double meaning. And that's what I'm moving towards here. So when he says born again, the idea is both born again. And it can also mean 
born from above. And so you can see the meaning in that double entendre, that born again, a rebirth, a spiritual rebirth, and born from up above. That is born not of the earth, but born from the things of God who is up above, right? Born of a spiritual rebirth. So that's the idea. One must be born again. One must experience a spiritual rebirth. Now that's what Jesus means, but that's not what Nicodemus understands. So now let's continue with this. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Okay, so now you can see Nicodemus's confusion when he says in verse four, how can a man be born when he is old? Now, what you have to understand is the idea or the concept of being born again was nothing new to Nicodemus. Sometimes we hear, or some, and I have heard people say that Nicodemus had never heard of being born again, but that's not true. Nicodemus and, um, and amongst the Jewish people, it was a well-known thing of the idea of being born again. All right. So what? So let me give you that six ways. There are primarily six ways for the Jewish people. And this is in the mind of Nicodemus to be born again. All right. You can be born again if you are a Gentile converting to Judaism. If you're a Gentile converting to a Jew, to Jew that is being a proselyte, converting to the religion of the Jews. Nicodemus was already a Jew and of course, of course, practicing Judaism. So therefore, this was not a lot. This was not allowed for him. He couldn't do that. He was already a Jew. So this was off the table. He couldn't be born again in this fashion. Or if a man is crowned king, he is called born again. And of course, Nicodemus <laughs> was no son of David. And therefore, he was not eligible for the throne of David. OK, so he couldn't be king. So this is not he's not eligible to be born again in this fashion. Then there is the mitzvah for when Jewish boys go through this ceremony for adulthood. Nicodemus is already an old man. He has already been through this ceremony, so he could not be born again through this. He's not eligible for this. You are called also born again if when you are married. So, and this was the normative case. When a man is a Pharisee, he would usually be a married man. That's just the normal case of things, being a married man. So he's already been married, is married, so he cannot be born again. He's not eligible for this. If he, okay, another case, number five, 
if you are made a rabbi or rabin, rabin, okay, high standing rabbi. So if you're a rabbi, you are called born again. Nicodemus, as we will see when Jesus said, are you not the teacher? So Nicodemus is a rabbi. So this eligibility is not available to him. And then finally, if you are establishing a yeshiva, a rabbinic school, and clearly that's why Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher. That is because he is, he has established, he is the head of a rabbinic school. So what is the point? In all six ways that the Jew can be born again, that I just mentioned to you, Gentile converting to Judaism, crown king, mitzvah, to be married, ordained a rabbi, establishing a rabbinic school. Nicodemus was not eligible for any of these things, so he is asking Jesus, how in the world can I be born again except I re-enter my mother's womb and be born and start the process all over again and then meet these qualifications. You got it? So Nicodemus is not asking simply that thinking that born again through the mama's womb thing, but born again to do these things, these earthly things that I've already just talked about, that six outline of things. And that's what he's talking about. He, he said, I can't do that all over again. The only way I can do that all over again is to re-enter my mother's womb and be born again. And so what does Jesus do? He responds to him and simply says to him, what? That which is born of flesh is flesh. Or in other words, listen, listen, one must be born of water and spirit. Now, when he makes mention of the water and spirit, he, Jesus is letting him know that this birth is not a flesh birth. That is literally to be born in your mama's womb and come out again. But this birth must be born uh, is a spiritual rebirth. That's why that anothane, that word that is translated born again and born from above, that dual meaning. The meaning here is being attached to born from above because you are not born of, a, of the flesh, which is of the earth, of the earth, the flesh, but you're born of the spirit who is above so that you must be born of water and spirit. Now, let me take it to the issue of water. Water speaks of cleansing and water speaks of identification. And it is so important as we look at all of these things that Jesus is speaking about primarily himself. Jesus is speaking about faith in him, and you're going to see that in the context of what is up to verse 21. Jesus is talking about what God has done in giving his son, Jesus, and you must have faith in him. Only by having faith in Jesus as the Messiah, you can experience the rebirth that Jesus is talking about. You can be born again by faith in Jesus alone. And in this faith in Jesus, now what you have to understand is this. It was a very common thing. Remember, remember, 
John the Baptist. Why is he called the Baptist? Because he baptized. The idea of baptism is to express belief, to express following. Once, so the Jewish mindset, here's the Jewish mindset. And you have to remember that when working with the scriptures, what was the first century? That's, that's when Jesus walked the earth. What was the first century custom and culture of the Jewish people that Jesus experienced that we have in the New Testament? What was the idea, the prevailing thought and, and understanding in that time? And why did they do what they did and what were they doing? What was the meaning behind what they do did at that time? They also practiced baptism. So the water would come as the waters of baptism as an indication. I, you're being baptized. And as you come up, that expression, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. This baptism is a public thing. It is an expression, not that this water is saving me. Water ain't saving you. Faith in Jesus alone is saving you, but it is an expression, an outward expression, testimony to all who see. Let the world know I am a believer in Jesus and I am a believer in all that the Bible speaks concerning or that is namely Jesus has said concerning himself, the teachings of Christ and the apostles. I'm a believer placing my faith in Jesus and all other things. I am no longer associated. My association to life is faith in Jesus. So in doing all of that, what you would actually do as a Jew, you would disavow the teachings, especially those pharisaical teachings and things of that nature and certain uh, uh, attachment. Know that I just said certain attachment. Oh, I went too far. I wasn't intending to go this far, but a certain attachment to the temple, a certain attachment to the temple. Why? You understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. He is the fulfillment of the sacrifices and the offerings. Jesus' blood is the ultimate fulfillment of atoning for sins, not the blood of bulls and goats. So there's a sense of attach, of disattachment, deattachment from those things and being attached to faith in Christ alone. And this is a lot of times what caused so many problems. But water and spirit. I hope I didn't confuse you guys, but the idea is by the spirit regeneration, spiritual regeneration is done for the individual. By the water, there is the expression to the world. I have faith in the saving faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. It becomes a testimony. Okay. And so he says, without this, that is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, it will be impossible to enter into the kingdom of God. And he finally simply says, don't be confused. Flesh is flesh. 
Remember Nicodemus said, do I have to go back into my mother's womb and restart this eligibility process all over again? Jesus said, these are fleshly things. Flesh belongs is of the flesh. No, but what? The spirit, those things, you must be born of the spirit. Spirit is spirit. The things that I am speaking to you concerns spiritual matters, even higher matters. And therefore, the rebirth that I'm telling you about that is necessary to attain is a spiritual thing. It cannot be done by the way you think born again is accomplished. All of those six things that I named this is of the flesh. What I am talking about is something that the Holy Spirit does for you. And we'll see later on, later on in this discussion, Jesus is going to explain uh, by what means. Notice what I said. I didn't say in what way, but by what means the Holy Spirit regenerates the individual. And we already know the Holy Spirit regenerates an individual when such a one expresses faith in Jesus, I believe he is God made flesh, died for my sins, resurrected from the dead. When you hold to that truth of faith in your heart, the Holy Spirit regenerates you and you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. OK, but enough said on that. So now let's go to verse number seven. Because Jesus knows there is a great deal of confusion with Nicodemus and he tries to clarify this confusion to a degree. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. OK, so let me deal with that. So he knows he's confused. And so he says, don't let this startle you and, and, and just disturb you so greatly. And Jesus gives an example of the wind. Now, that is the wind is a fact. We know the wind exists. But what does Jesus say? Tell me where did the wind come from? The he said, we know the direction, but where? Ultimately, in origin, in origin, where did all of the wind come from to do all of the things that it does as it makes whatever rounds it makes in the earth? We don't know about that and where it ultimately goes. And what. so the workings of the wind, we don't know, but nevertheless, we know as a fact it does exist. And as a fact, it has these workings, even though we don't understand how it all works. And that's what Jesus is saying primarily about the working of the spirit in regeneration. You don't have to know about how all of it works, Nicodemus, to know the reality and the truth of the fact that it is true and that the spirit does work and it does regenerate, allow me to say, the heart of a man. OK, so he says everyone who is born of the spirit, same thing. You don't have to know about the ins and the outs, but still to know it is a fact and that it happens. 
You got it? So he just uses the idea of the wind. You don't know all about that, but yet it still happens. Same with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to know about how this works and how that works. Nicodemus wants to know, well, how do I do this? You don't have to know. Just simply accept the fact this is ha this happens and this is the truth of the matter. All right. Nine. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Ten. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe how you believe, I tell you heavenly things. Now, I like this. OK, so you can see Nicodemus's confusion just seems to get deeper and deeper. And you can almost sense a sense of panic in his confusion. How I just in other words, we would simply say, I just don't understand it. I just don't understand it. His frustration grows. And so Jesus looks at him. He's already been talking to him and he lets us know. Remember, we just told you earlier that Nicodemus was a rabbi. And these uh, words here lets us know the status of Nicodemus. And so as Nicodemus is confused, Jesus responds to him and simply says, are you supposed to be the teacher of Israel? And notice there is the definite article, the in front of the word teacher. So he is not simply saying, are you supposed to be a teacher? That is a rabbi, because remember the whole idea of rabbi literally means master or teacher. That's the idea. So he didn't ask him, are you supposed to be a teacher? He said, are you supposed to be the teacher? And that is Jesus was calling him Rabin or Rabban. And that is the idea of the head of a Shiva, the head of a rabbinical school. So you're not just simply a teacher, but you're supposed to be the head of a rabbinical school. Are you a man of such stature and you don't even know this? You don't understand these things? You can't understand what I'm trying to communicate with you. And you're supposed to be a great rabbinic teacher? And that's what Jesus asked him. So actually it was a, there was a sense of negativity about it in Nicodemus frustrating confusion. Jesus goes on to simply say, he said, and there's a sense of uh, propheticness in this. In other words, the reason why I say propheticness is this. Jesus has not said a lot to Nicodemus, a lot in his ministry at this point has not been disclosed in the things that he will say. He will say and do many more things than what he has already done. So there's a sense of propheticness involved in what he's about to say. That's why he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. In other words, I have already told you now. OK, OK, let me say Let me stop this because I didn't put that together correctly. The propheticness of it. All right. So let's back it up. I am already telling you things. And that's the idea of what Jesus is trying to say. I'm already telling you things. 
I am bearing witness. And that is a function of the Messiah. Again, and we don't want to rehash all of it again. Go back and check out chapter one, the light. What is the point of the light? To, 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 give, to give light, to give the knowledge of God, to give the knowledge of the things of God. And what Jesus is going to say is he is going to give the knowledge of things on earth as well as in heaven. But truly, truly, just, let me just break it down. I say unto you, we speak of what we know. Now we see Jesus is simply using, I believe here, the majestic plural. We speak, okay? And it seems to be an inference to the heightened uh, reality of his person. In other words, he's not simply, it doesn't seem the text, because if you stay in the strict context of it, he's not saying, I, along with others, are speaking these things. Mm -mm. He's speaking of himself alone is saying these things. So therefore, that's what we mean by the majestic plural, when you speak of yourself in a grand way. And that is, as we have in the book of John, Jesus is more than a man. He's more than a Messiah man. He is, he is what? He is God. So therefore, it seems to infer here, he's using the majestic plural, not saying so much right now, but he's, he's moving in that direction. We speak we speak what? What we know and testify to what we have seen. And you don't accept our testimony. So Jesus is letting him know he has a knowledge. He has a knowledge that beyond even what Nicodemus has and even beyond what Nicodemus expects. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus. What was the first word that he called Jesus? Rabbi which means what? Teacher, teacher. So in order to be a teacher, you must have knowledge. You, and the idea is you must have a great knowledge in order to be able to teach others. So Jesus is inferring things about himself. He has a knowledge even greater than what Nicodemus has assumed that he has. And so therefore he can speak the things that he knows he can speak the things that he has seen. Now I'm going to talk about the seen part later on as we move through this, but we speak what we know. So Jesus telling him about what? Let's go back to that context of being born again, how this takes place by a, by the spirit. It is a supernatural thing done by the spirit even though like the wind that Nicodemus doesn't understand, he does, you don't understand how the spirit brings about the rebirth in the individual. But Jesus knows and Jesus understands how the spirit brings about this rebirth. And since Jesus knows how the spirit brings about this rebirth, he is able to tell you how the rebirth is actually done. And what's the problem, Nicodemus? I, Jesus, who knows these things, true rabbi of rabbi, I testify of it, but yet you don't receive my testimony. And basically in a nutshell, that's what he's saying. I know what I'm talking about, Nicodemus, but yet you're not believing me when I'm telling you about how a man is born again of the spirit. And then he simply says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, that is, 
things that take place on the earth. Because, watch this, even though our spiritual rebirth is, takes place in the realm, in the realm of the spirit, it's still here on earth. Why? That's where we are. We are on the earth. We are of the earth. We are earthly creatures who experience the spiritual rebirth. But nevertheless, it's an earthly thing. So Jesus said, if I tell you of earthly things and you don't believe, how in the world will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Now that part I like. How will you believe if I tell Because, okay, notice, there is a sense of greater than, greater than. Earthly things, lower. Heavenly things, well, that's as high as that you can get. You got it? But the heavenly things are far from us. We have no idea what takes place in the heavenly things. And that, and okay, with that, allow me to set the foundation for what Jesus is about to say. We, okay, if I said, how do you know about heavenly things except you have seen them? How can you tell me about the experiences of heaven except you have been there? And that's where Jesus is laying the foundation about himself. You got it? The Messiah, man in the flesh, but also the Messiah, one who comes from God, even his pre-existence. Okay, so that's the foundation that he's preparing us in this grand discussion with Nicodemus. So how will you believe I tell you heavenly things, right? Verse 13, watch as, the, as Jesus unfolds this concept. No one has ascended, no one has ascended, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Boy, I want to hoop on that, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes it, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Okay. Now let's talk to this section. Okay. So now notice Jesus said, I told you about earthly things. You got difficulty believing that. How in the world are you going to believe me if I tell you about heavenly things? Okay. In order to be qualified to tell of heavenly things, that is to give firsthand knowledge. Did you understand that? Not, not God told me so. Not God told me so. No things that I have seen, things that I have experienced. Where? In heaven. In order to give firsthand witness of the things in heaven, that means you must have been in heaven. So now Jesus is also, he's building it up in the mind of Nicodemus without just blasting it out to him. I'm God who came from heaven and took flesh and therefore I'm qualified to tell you things in heaven. I'm qualified to tell you things of the flesh. I'm qualified to tell you things of the spirit, the things of heaven. Why? I came down from heaven. I am from heaven. 
I am God. I am sin of the father. So he didn't just blame it out to Nicodemus that way, but he's working it out in this fashion. And I think it's a beautiful statement, but let's go back to the text. So what did he say? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven. Jesus gives her, gives Nicodemus, slowing it down, calming down, his singular uniqueness in being a witness. There is no other person singularly qualified to tell you the things of heaven but me, like me. I am the only one, the son of man. So allow me to continue to unpack this statement. In order to tell you of heaven, and that's why I said all of that stuff earlier, you have to be there. I was there. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God in the heavens. I was there. No one ascended into heaven and no other person went up to heaven who can come back down and bring you the unique testimony that only I can give. He can't tell you about heaven because nobody went up there and came back to be able to tell you about this. I am the only one who the son of man. So notice he descends from heaven. So he lets him see his heavenly origin, which also again does what? It speaks of his person. He must pre-exist. You see him as a man born of Mary on a particular day. But Jesus is saying before the day of his birth, I am. Just like he simply said to that crowd before Abraham was, which was long before his birth, I am. That is, I existed. And what did they say? You're not even what? you 30 years, 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And you know, and that's when Jesus said, I existed even before Abraham. So he's intimating that same idea before his incarnation into flesh. He existed into heaven, thereby qualified to give a unique witness of the things of heaven, which makes him uh, qualified to speak of what? Spirit things, all right? Then he calls himself the son of man. Now, I don't wanna get into a long, that you can actually write a dissertation, even from the book of Daniel, about the son of man. Another title for the Messiah. Another title for the Messiah. And this title speaks of and no, that's why I said, oh, Lord, have mercy. We can work with it, guys, but I can't. Man, son of man, son of a man. That is, he would be human being. So it speaks of his human nature. Whenever Jesus talks about his human nature, uh, 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 refers to his human nature, he uses the term son of man. That is, he is a human being. Whenever Jesus talks about his divine nature, he uses son of God. That is, he is God. So you have to understand that. And you'll see that in the text. And that's why I always tell people, you have to just dig in every word of the text, especially coming out of Jesus' mouth, every, every text of the scripture, 
uh, uh, because there are so many nuances and sometimes you just be calling words and you're not understanding the implication of what the Bible is trying to talk about. So son of man, all the way back to when it's spoken of in the Old Testament, you'll even see it in the book of Daniel, uh, the son of man coming on the clouds of glory. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. Okay. A term for Messiah. So Jesus is here directly claiming to Nicodemus to be the Messiah. And this was a confusion that Nicodemus had concerning Jesus. Notice Nicodemus did not address Jesus as the Messiah. And we will see throughout the ministry of Jesus, Nicodemus is coming to faith. He's confused. He doesn't know. It's a slow transformation. He doesn't really come into faith. We'll see that until the death of Jesus. And then Nicodemus is a believer that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay. But the Messiah is a man, a human being, a, a descendant from the family of David, son of David. But what is also inferred, what is also inferred by Jesus when he uses the idea of son of man is the purpose for the coming in the flesh. And that is to die for sins. And that's why all of this is such a wonderful discussion with Nicodemus. But let me stop there. I don't want to confuse you. Let me just stay on target so you don't get confused. So he says here. I am uniquely qualified to tell you about spiritual things because I come from a spiritual origin, heaven itself. And so therefore it tells you I am more than just simply a man. So again, Jesus gives that dualistic uh, 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 reference to his nature by calling himself son of man, human being. But then he says, I come from heaven. God, his pre-existence, okay, which is what the whole idea of the gospel of John. Jesus is God. He is God made flesh, God and man. All right, let me go because I think I'm going a little bit too deep. Then he begins to talk purpose. Okay, it's so, it's so beautiful though. If you did come from heaven, if you are indeed God, God who is made into flesh, this flesh bringing us, bringing us a testimony of how one could be born again and enter into the kingdom. Why then did you have to be born in, into flesh? Why did God have to be made man? Why did the second person, son of God, why did the second person of the Trinity have to be made into flesh and be born into this world. That's the beauty of the remainder of the text that Jesus answers for Nicodemus questions that Nicodemus does not ask, but questions nevertheless that will prevail in his mind later on. In other words, if Jesus indeed was the Messiah, why did he have to die? I thought, as you'll see the Jews would say later on to Jesus, I thought the Messiah was to remain forever. What do you keep talking about the death of the Messiah? It's a powerful thing. Let's just talk about the text. So what does he say? 14, 
and 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 the word as the idea in the, that Greek word as what, what verse is that 13 even as that's the idea kathos 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 I'm sorry kathos which means even as which means there is a similarity or a comparison what is the comparison even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so in hutos is the word in this in like manner I believe that's the word hutos that's right in like manner the son of man must be lifted up let's finish it out so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life okay now let's talk about it so now he is just what did he's doing Jesus is bringing on such a depth of information to Nicodemus I can imagine Nicodemus is like getting knocked back and forward with all of the things that Jesus said to him because he just at this time cannot understand what Jesus is saying. So Jesus just said what? All right. Remember the whole primary issue we're dealing with born again to enter into the kingdom. That's the idea. Enter into the kingdom. Jesus said it comes through born again. What do you mean born again? Not this Jewish way that you're talking about. This born again is a spiritual, spiritual rebirth. Nicodemus said, I don't understand what you mean by spiritual rebirth. And Jesus said, in the first time, you don't understand something, but accept that as the truth. You don't understand how the wind works, but you accept the wind as the truth. And so is the spirit. You don't have to understand how it works. Just accept it as the truth. And then you come to me, Nicodemus, and you call me a rabbi. And I tell you these things and you have difficulty believing me when I tell you these things about being born again. If you have trouble believing me about these things that take place on the earth, what if I actually told you about things in the heaven itself? And remember, nobody can tell you about the things that in heaven unless he has seen them and witnessed them firsthand. I am the only one uniquely qualified to have seen them firsthand and to bear witness to these things. And now I, Jesus, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, I, Jesus of Nazareth, now bear testimony. I am preaching to you the things of heaven. You got it? So I'm preaching you things of heaven. And then you say, well, wait, 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 wait. You think of a, you are you a pre-existent one and a whole idea of you are God. Then why is it necessary for God to be made flesh? Why is it necessary for God to come as a man and therefore do these things? And now, uh, watch. As Moses lifted, see, I said all of that to bring you to what Jesus is saying now. I think it's somewhere in Numbers chapter 21, where the children of Israel were once again being uh, uh, stubborn and disobedient uh, against God. And God sent a fiery serpent to bite them. And when God sent the fiery serpent to, to bite, the poisonous bite was stinging them and killing many of them. And uh, God made relief. And he said to Moses, uh, build a, 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 a bronze serpent. Take the bronze serpent, hanging up up on the stick, hanging kind of like hanging up up on a cross. That's the idea. But hanging up on a pole, and when you're hanging up on the pole, 
Tell everyone who has been bitten to come by and look at that bronze serpent. And whoever looks upon the bronze serpent will live. That is, whoever looks upon that bronze serpent having faith that God has supplied this as a means to life that can heal you and save your life, you will live. That's what took place with the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Okay? So Jesus says in a parallel sense, like God said to Moses, hang that serpent up so that whoever looks upon that serpent in faith might live the same thing, the same thing. Even the soul, the son of man must be lifted up. Now watch this. That's why I was made in the flesh. That's why it was necessary for God to come in the flesh. For number one, remember I've told you a million times, only God can save. Only by what God does save. God is the only provider of salvation, the bringer of salvation, the one who comes up with the concept of salvation, the origin of salvation. He is the author, the one who begins, and the finisher, the one who finishes our faith from start to finish only God can save. So therefore God must come, but God must die. God must die. But how can God die? He has to take human form. What did Jesus call himself? Son of man, not son of God. He is, but son of man, because the reference is here, what? To his humanity. Only in human form can he die. But so the same way that the serpent hung upon that, not cross, but on the pole, but we understand it, those who had faith were healed. They lived. He said, in this manner, so must the son of man. That's why I came into the flesh. That's why I had a body to be made, to be hung up on the cross. Why? So that whoever looks Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Whoever looks and believes, see, looking and believing, synonymous the same thing. But I'm looking at Jesus. I believe that he on this cross did what? He took God, took flesh to die for my sins on this cross. And I'm looking at him on this cross and I'm believing he died for my sins. He rose from the dead. And therefore I believe this and this grants me eternal life. Again, notice guys, I just want to say this as a side talk. You're only saved by faith. You're not saved by what you do. You're saved by what you believe. Believing in the person and work of Jesus alone, alone, alone. But anyway, so Jesus brings this whole issue of Moses and the serpent in the wilderness, how it was hung up, and himself, how it would be necessary for him to be hung up to give life. So again, he is furthering developing for Nicodemus, how is one born of the spirit? One is born by believing in the works of Jesus. One is, that is, dying on the cross. One is born by having faith 
in Jesus in his work, atoning work on the cross, just like Moses and he and God provided that serpent to give life to those who were bitten and were about to die. Same for us who are dead in our sins and in our trespasses. We too are dead and are about to die and enter into eternal damnation and judgment. But God has provided a provision of life in his son by taking flesh so that whoever should look upon him and believe in the God man who has made flesh dying on this cross for me, this is the provision of life. And that's what Jesus explained to Nicodemus. And by believing in him, the spirit transforms such an individual. This is the secret working of the Holy Spirit. What? Those who believe in Jesus, the spirit regenerates them. So that which you don't understand how the spirit does it, Jesus says, well, let me tell you how the spirit will do it when you have faith in me. But anyway, enough of that. This is far too long. Let's bring it out to a close. 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Okay. So it's so thick. It's so thick, but let's, let's try to finish this out. So what? So now Jesus has just been talking about what? How that one who has knowledge of things in heaven, the preexistent one, we even know the son of God who is made flesh, the son of man, son of God made flesh, son of man, like the serpent uh, uh, put up on a stick uh, uh, and die so that those who would believe in him would have life. Jesus put up on a stick. We know the cross so that those who believe in his atoning death would have everlasting life. And so he says, this, verse number 16, this was, or should we can say, this is the plan of God. This is the eternal plan of God. And this is the demonstration of God's love. And this is when he says, for God so loved the world. And I often hear people, people like to think about it this way. For God so loved the world. He loved the world this much. That's not what the word is. The word in the Greek is hutos. For God, this is literally what it means. It means for God demonstrated the greatness of his love. And that's what he is saying. How did God demonstrate the greatness of his love? He gave, that is, remember the whole idea. The serpent is lifted on the cross. Jesus is lifted on the cross. He gave his uniquely, his only begotten son. There is none other like Jesus to the father. And yet this one so close to God, this one so beloved of God, God gave him up. Why did God gave, give him up? 
because he loved the world. And that's what he's trying to say. So that, and notice, that, that is purposeful. This death of Jesus is a purposeful death. It is a death that has reason behind it. So that what? Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And now he finishes that example that with Moses and the serpent. Moses took the bronze serpent and hung him up. Why? So that whoever look and believe might live. And God sent his uniquely begotten son into the world in flesh to be hung on a cross. Why? So that whoever might look to Jesus in his atoning death on the cross might look and believe. All of this was the purpose. So Jesus is even saying, telling Nicodemus, not only am I the Messiah, but the Messiah must die and why the Messiah must die. Why? Because the death of the Messiah is the only means unto salvation and it is God's plan of salvation. It not only demonstrates his love, but it is the plan of salvation and faith in the work of Jesus. His atoning death on that cross by the plan of God is the only way. That's why later on our Jesus is going to say that he that is, he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto God but through him. No other faith, no other religious system, no other belief. You either believe in Jesus and Jesus alone and be saved, or to hell you will go. And that is the exclusivity of faith in Jesus alone. There is no other way, no other system of belief. I don't care how many, what if, and what if, and what if Jesus and Jesus alone, and that discussion is over with. But enough by that. Let's get back to the text. So now he said, so God demonstrates his love by giving his son for the purpose of life, eternal life. Okay. And so he says, in addition, God did not send the son into the world to judge the world. That is the Messiah. He did not send the son... In other words, coming down in Jesus' first coming. Notice what I said, his first coming, his coming into the world. He did not come as a judge. He came as a savior. Now we know Jesus did what? He died and ascended into heaven, but he will return. We await the day of his return. When Jesus comes back into the world, this is not the rapture, of course, now. This is the second advent. To set up the kingdom. When Jesus returns back into the world, he returns then as a judge. But in his first coming, he was not. Okay? So he did not come into the world at the first time to judge, but he came the first time to provide a means of salvation. That is, through that death on the cross. Such a death he will never experience again. Once and for all things, as talked about in the book of Hebrews. And so therefore he says, and the person who believes in him is not judged. Do you believe? And see, no, you have to take in. And I know this lesson is long, but that's the depth of Jesus' communication with Nicodemus. He who believes in him. Do you believe I am God? Do you believe I am now a man? I am the God 
man. Do you believe that I died on the cross for your sins, raised from the dead? That's what he means by the cumulative, cumulative idea, he who believes. He who believes in him is not judged. That is, you will not experience the judgment of eternal damnation. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Now I'm going to take that down a little bit because I went fast. If you do not believe in what the Bible says about Jesus, what Jesus says about Jesus, the things that I've been saying about Jesus, God, man died for our sins like the serpent on the cross rose from the dead. You are condemned already. You will be judged and suffer eternal damnation. First hellfire, then the lake of fire. Why? Because there is no other way. This is God's provision of salvation. Notice what he said in verse number 16. For God so loved the world. This reason of the Messiah coming into the world as a man, God, man, and this reason for the hanging on the cross is the plan of God. It is the only plan that God has given. So therefore, if you reject God's plan, if you reject faith in Jesus as Messiah, you are condemned. Why? There is no other way because you have rejected God's only plan. So, but let me finish it because he has not believed. Now notice what he just said in the name of the only begotten son of God. Notice what you got a flip in the title. Okay, guys, I'm sure I'm shortening it up. Remember what I just said earlier about the son of man thing, son of man referring to what his humanity, but now and that Jesus called himself son of man. Now notice what Jesus calls himself, son of God. Son of God is simply the title for his divine personages. So notice where is condemnation? When is condemnation? You must believe in the dual nature of Jesus. You must believe he is both son of God. Notice he said, you are condemned because number one, you got to believe in, you got to believe in two things. Son of God. That's what he just said here in this verse. Son of God. I am God in the beginning. In the beginning, what did John say? And I keep going over and over again, but that's the whole point of the gospel of John. One and one. In the beginning was a word. Word was God. Word was God. Word was made. God was made flesh. Jesus said, you are condemned if you do not believe in the name of the son of God. My divine person again concerning to Nicodemus, he says, I am the son of man. I am the manifestation of God's plan in the flesh that provides salvation. And like Moses stuck that serpent on the cross so that those who look and believe might be saved. Same for me, son of man, this death on the cross, unless you believe Jesus is both what? Son of God, son of man. He is both what? God and man. Salvation is not offered. You can't be saved. You must believe in both the person, God, man, and the work dying on the cross, rising from the dead of Jesus in order to be saved. Let's go back to the original question to Jesus answering the thought of Nicodemus in this lesson. What must a person do to enter the kingdom of God? How?
can a man be born again? Believing that I am son of God, son of man, taking flesh, dying on the cross, raising from the dead. That's how Nicodemus. But anyway, so finishing it out. 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds would be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Okay, so now Jesus says that this. So here, here is the downcast part of Jesus' uh, words to Nicodemus in a very similar way. Like John said in chapter one, the light came into the world and still the men rejected the light. But those who uh, uh, received him to those, he gave the power to become the sons of God. Same identical concept that Jesus is now speaking to Nicodemus. So what is he saying? The light has come into the world. Remember Nicodemus that I'm sorry, John, the writer of the gospel of John has been saying about the light, one who comes purpose, the purpose of God, one to give revelation of the saving knowledge of God, the father. What is the saving knowledge of God, the father, God, the son taking flesh, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, knowledge and faith in him. This is what gives life. This is light. This is light. This is the purpose that Jesus came to do these things. And that light has come into the world. And what did he say? And nevertheless, men rather prefer darkness because they're evil. Now, light and darkness. Notice again, remember I talked about those dualistic here. We got a, a contrary type light darkness, but light. Jesus coming to the world. Nevertheless, men like darkness. Now it speaks of once again, rejection the rejection of Jesus. And so this is their rejection of the Messiah remaining in their sins. This is about being in darkness because they love the darkness. Their deeds were evil. And now here is, okay, let me just simply say this. I don't want, I know it's long, but let me say this. Their deeds are evil. Remember that I said to you, how is an individual saved? Faith in Jesus alone. Faith in I believe whom Jesus is claims to be what he has done. You got that? That by itself, a man is saved. But nevertheless, those who are in darkness with evil deeds. Notice here is the implication that must be drawn. Faith in Jesus can never be an empty faith. Faith, as James says it, faith without works is dead without works, without testifying works, without accompanying works, without a righteous life. Coming to Jesus in an empty, and it kind of takes us back to the end of chapter one. Coming to Jesus in empty words. I believe Jesus is the Christ. He the son of God, but not in heart. A true heart felt is always accompanied by deeds, deeds. Why? A tree is known by the fruit it bears. And so therefore, Jesus simply said, it is so sad. That is the light is coming to the world. It is so sad that God can be made flesh and down the cross. This great and magnificent offering of salvation of the father can come into the world light and men still 
still reject God's plan of salvation, God's offer of salvation, just because they want to continue in their evil deeds. So let me just stop there. And that's what Jesus is saying. They don't want to come to me. They don't want to have faith in me because number one, they are practicing witness, <clears throat> wickedness, and guess what? Implication. True faith in me demands a change. Faith in Christ Jesus demands a change. You're not just born again to live the life of the devil. You are born again to live a life that is pleasing to Christ, to he who called. Okay. But anyway, so then he just continues to say, everyone who does the evil hates the light. Everybody who wants to practice sin and sinfulness hates the things of Jesus. They hate the words of Jesus. They hate all about Jesus, right? And so he doesn't come to the light as Jesus simply saying, because his deeds will be exposed. Such a one will be exposed for what he truly is. He is not a true believer. He is a hypocrite. He is an evil one. And we see that Jesus talks about that all the time, but I'm not gonna get into that discussion. But then he says, but on the contrary, he who practices the truth. And that is Jesus talking about what? Obedience, obedience to the truth. One who desires to live. Now, here I know I'm fast. That's why I'm trying to close. One who desires to live a life that is pleasing to God, practices the truth, the knowledge of God. God has made it known how he wants us to live. And you say to yourself, and I want to live in a way that pleases God. You are the one who are practicing the truth of God. And guess what? And I'm coming to Jesus. Why? He is the truth. He tells the truth. You shall know the truth, as Jesus said, and the truth shall set you free. Again, Jesus says about himself, I am the way. I am the truth truth. I am the life. I am these things. So guess what? We come to Jesus because we seek to be pleasing unto God. And so that what our deeds are manifest have wrought in God. And it is clear that we desire to have, that we live lives that are pleasing to God or that are obedient to God. Okay, guys, enough. I'm going to stop there. I don't even know how long this video has been, but Thanks for joining me there. It's just simply, the, even though we did delve into all of the complexities, it's really easy when you stand out from it. I'm sorry, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. His whole idea, what's in his mind, entering the kingdom, entering the kingdom. So he comes to Jesus. And what does he do? He, uh, he, he praises Jesus as a, a, as a rabbi, as a teacher. And, and that he's come and they know he come from God because of the wonderful thing that he does. Jesus cuts through the mustard. Answer the question Nicodemus does not ask. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you got to be born again. This confuses Nicodemus because in the Jewish system, they have six ways of being born again. You can be born again when you convert to Judaism if you're a Gentile, when you're a crown king, or when you become uh, have a misfa, when you're married, when you ordain a rabbi, or when you are the head of a yeshiva, of a school, a rabbinic school. Nicodemus has experienced most of these things. Some of them he's not qualified for, but all of them he can't do. He can't do any of those again. So he's confused how a person can be born again. So he just 
hammers to Jesus in his frustrated confusion. I don't understand how this can be. Jesus simply responds to him, well, there are a lot of things that you don't understand, but you still accept them as the truth. For instance, the wind and this thing that I'm telling you about the spirit, it does the same thing. But with respect to the, 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 me telling you about these things, I can tell you because I'm uniquely qualified. I came down from heaven. But Nicodemus, if you have a hard time with me telling you about earthly things, wow, you really going to have a hard time when I tell you about things in the heaven, because the only way you can tell about things in the heaven, you got to come down from the heavens. And I am because I pre-existed. I am God. But who came down from heaven? Son of man. I didn't come down from heaven. God, I came down from heaven as a man. And that therefore, I'm uniquely qualified. But you say, what in the world would God be made a man for? Because this is God the Father's plan of salvation. And it is his demonstration of love for the world that he sends the uniquely begotten son to take on flesh and down the cross. Why? Whoever believes in him might not perish because all the world is lost without him. So believing in the atoning work of him, you can have life. And be careful if you do not believe what? All who believe in the atoning work of the son of man that I died on the cross, rose from the dead, have life. But if you do not believe in this plan, then you have eternal damnation awaiting on you. Hell and the lake of fire. Why? You have not believed in the son of God. That is, you believe that I am God who was made man for the purpose of providing this atoning death on the cross salvation for you. But then it is a sad thing that such a great plan of salvation has come into the world and still men refuse to come to Jesus to be saved. Why? Because they want to keep on living the sinful life that they are living. They don't want to come to Jesus because in coming to Jesus, as I said uh, in the Old Testament, your sins will find you out. Coming to Jesus will show just how sinful they really are. And it's a sad thing that God has done all of these things in providing salvation by God becoming flesh, dying on the cross, and, and all men have to do, put their faith in him. And then if truly you've done this, live a life that's pleasing to God. And in all of this, men still reject God. And that, in a nutshell, is what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, all right? So, complexities, beautiful. Glad you were with me on all of that to investigate the depths of what Jesus is saying. But in a nutshell, what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, simple. And we find this is the beauty of John's gospel. John can say in the simplest of ways, things that have the greatest complexities and make you go, mm, now what does that mean? Mm, now what does that mean? But thanks for joining me and join me next time as we continue on. We've done with the Nicodemus thing and we move to the testimony here back again with John the Baptist and continuing. And remember saints, if you have enjoyed these lessons and I truly hope you have as much as I have enjoyed teaching them and you want to say, Thank you, Pastor Lee. If you're able, I would say to you, send a gift. 
Send a monetary gift, that is, in support of the ministry so that these videos can be continually made for you and for your benefit. Okay, but anyway, enough of that. Support the ministry, guys. Pray for me, and we'll see you next time.